It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. If the word psychedelic makes you think of Woodstock, the 1960s, and people dropping out of society, you are behind the times. While still prohibited by law, some once considered bad boys of the drug culture, LSD, psilocybin, are now being seriously studied by science and found to be not only completely non-addictive, but more effective in the relief of anxiety, addiction, and depression than any known or traditional treatment. Having studied the variety of ways to alter and change consciousness for decades, today's special guest, Sparrow Hart, will be discussing both the incredible promise of psychedelics as well as potential pitfalls for their misuse in an addictive and distractive seeking culture. Sparrow Hart has been talking about medicine for decades. His personal journey includes the 12 steps, a long apprenticeship in the Toltec and Castaneda tradition, dream exploration, psychodrama, inner child work, and a wild range of shamanic practices. He has offered workshops on medicine wheel teachings, traveled to the Amazon to explore medicine plants, and taught about medicine names, songs, and encounters with medicine animals. The quests and workshops Sparrow offers reflect his personal journey and what he holds important. His mission and joy is sharing them with others. They join earth and sky through affirming and addressing what's universal, archetypal, transcendent, and eternal. While applying these techniques and wisdoms to teachings to the distress, difficulties, and dilemmas of our personal histories and the lives we're living now, he is the author of several books, including Letters to the River, A Guide to a Dream Worth Living. Good morning, Sparrow, and welcome to the show. Uh, good morning, Randy, and thank you for that awesome introduction. <laughs> Hope I can live up to it. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that you can. Um, the first question I wanted to ask you is, you say um, in your one of your blog posts that today's normal daily reality is an altered state and that it is anything but natural. This, to me, opened up a whole, whole, I mean, I read a lot more about it, but I want you to explain that. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, um, what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, in the big picture, I can say we have all been trained to see the world the way we see it. And it's, an, it's certainly not the way that um, many cultures throughout history have seen it. And it's certainly not, it, it's not the way that uh, 
our primal what I want what I would want to call our our sensory and imaginative imaginative and emotional bodies uh, would naturally see it. Um, you know, one one simple way to get into this is, um, you know, I could say we we've all had like twelve to sixteen or more years of compulsory schooling to train ourselves to see the world in a certain way. Um, and and that's a way that uh, tends to make us very rational, intellectual, tend to be struck, stuck in our heads, tend to think about things at the expense of feeling them, at the expense of sensing them, at the expense of even validating uh, things like dreams. And, and so we're, we've been trained to see the world the way we are. And that's why I, I call it an altered state. It's not a natural state. And, um, and you know, certainly the evidence of that is if you, if you look throughout the culture and you, um, and you talk about the number of suicides a year, and I'm just talking about the United States, we're talking about, uh, you know, 80,000 suicides a year. We're talking about um, uh, 70, 80,000 people who die of opioid addiction. We're talking about, uh, you know, um, we're talking about all of these in some sense, mental disorders that happen within with, within what we call normal, and so uh, this is definitely an, an altered state. And it's just, you know the evidence and the, which you see in some of these horrible statistics, in some sense, says proves that it is not in some sense. It's certainly it's not normal, and it's certainly not healthy. Um. So. Um, I just want to say, yeah, there are other ways of seeing the world that, um, and you know, and it doesn't mean every other way of seeing the world is is therefore better. It's, but there's certainly other ways of seeing the world that will produce greater uh, ease, greater openness, greater connection to to nature, to um, the spirit, et cetera. And so, um, I mean that's. And uh, I mean that's in some sense uh, a short answer, and I certainly could go uh, <laughs> longer, but I'm not going to on that one. So. Okay. Um, All right. Yeah. yeah, and that that in itself is so um, expanding. You know, we can really, really think about that. Uh, you said in, pre- in a previous post, you spoke about the the two worlds. Um, the first world making up the daily consensual reality and our ego-centered point of view, uh, which is the result of downloaded roles, um, a way of thinking that we've inherited from our culture. And then the second form of awareness is reported and accessed by mystics, sages, shamans, and wise people through the millennia, which is beyond our everyday rational thought and can't neatly fit into the conceptual boxes and categories of our language. Now, so what we're talking today, talking about today is psychedelic drugs. And so how do psychedelic drugs relate to these concepts of the fact that we are functioning on a downloaded system? All right. So um, one of the ways I like to think, to think about this, which is kind of a good framework for the whole discussion, is um, I think uh, – uh, Oftentimes with people, I give them a diagram. And so if you could imagine 
imagine taking a big piece of paper and drawing a big circle on it, maybe the circle, the circumference of a basketball. And I would say that circle represents everything we are, everything we are or can be. And then you draw a horizontal line across that circle, so about 10% of it is above the line and 90% of it is below. And that line represents consciousness. What's above the line is conscious, and the 90% below the line is what we call unconscious or subconscious. And so what I would say is we've been trained to keep all of our awareness above that line. We've been trained to keep all of our awareness in the 10% of, of what we are. Now, how do you get into that vastly larger um, field of who we can be and how we can perceive? Now, you know, and, you know, and so there are a lot of different techniques. One of them is, to, is medicine plants, what we're talking about today, these um, mushrooms or LSD, ayahuasca, MDM. A, there are other techniques to drop down, and I almost, I like the image of dropping a bucket into the well. You know, we, we go down below that line into this vast lake below, and then we bring up some water of, that's way outside our normal conscious system, but is part of who we are. And so, you know, certainly other ways are um, shamanic journeys and shamanic techniques ritual and ceremony, uh, vision quests, which uh, a method I've uh, taught and led for 30-plus years, um, and, uh, you know, ec ecstatic dance, holotropic breathwork. So there's a lot of different techniques and ways to drop into that much larger sense of who we are and to bring up parts of that into consciousness and then change the change the world or, or enlarge the, the field in which we play in. And, and certainly, and, and I think some of that, some of, the, some of the struggles or the difficulties are today is we're trying to live and, and have a fulfilling life when we access 10% or less of who we are. And of course, that's always going to be problematic. You, you said, Tom, in one of your articles, Freud, Freud once said, the price of civilization is neurosis. And that's really what you're saying, um, <clears throat> that we are, we've become neurotic as a result of this civilization that has um, dictated how we should think and how we should feel. And so there are other ways to access that part of our brain or part of our consciousness um, but how do how do psychedelic drugs access that part of our brain and then what is actually happening when we are so-called expanding our thoughts okay um, um, yeah so I'm just going to start with about two sentences in regards to that Freud statement, the price of civilization okay. is neurosis. Mm -hmm. And and a kind of simple statement of that is, uh, let's just say, Randy, you or I or anyone is born into the world, and as a child we have certain 
dreams and desires of the way we want to live. But do you think it's ever been anyone's dream or desire to be a coal miner, to go down into the ground in the dark for 12 hours a day in toxic conditions? I doubt that's ever been anyone's dream. But thousands or millions of people have been coal miners because that's what society needs. And so... So essentially, we're born into this world with this great kind of openness and maybe even a connection to that whole circle. But society needs coal miners or computer programmers or, you know, firefighters, police, etc. And we're channeled and educated uh, into that. So how does it work? Um, well, some of the the new research now is, is that... Um, uh, and uh, Michael Pollan, in the last, uh, I guess it was a year, year and a half ago, wrote a book called um, How to Change Your Mind. And uh, and he, he uh, talked about some of the new research on psychedelics. And one of the things that the new research has found is that it, it used to be assumed that when one took psychedelics, it produced all this extra uh, brain energy, and in fact, it, it turns out that is not true. That in fact, what happens is that when one takes psychedelics, that usually suppresses certain parts of the brain. And there's a part of the brain called the default mode network. So that in the default mode network, it's kind of like. Um, it's a it's a brain structure and a uh, an association of brain structures that almost like are guardrails that keep you on the road. So this so in daily life, uh, mo- a lot of daily life is about ignoring and not noticing certain things. Like literally, if you're driving down the road, you're not going to be noticing the all the uh, you know the beautiful leaves or flowers or wildlife in the forest. You keep your eyes on the road, so so to do so to drive down the road, or for most functions in life, it requires us to actually narrow our focus, and it's the default mode network which essentially says, "Don't think or perceive outside of the blinders we've put on you." And so, what most psychedelics do, and is that when one takes psychedelics, it suppre- it suppresses the default mode mode network. So actually what comes up is what I would call that, that uh, parts of that other 90% that we're always screening out and ignoring. So, so psychedelics kind of in some ways suppress that default mode network, or you could say suppress the sensor. And mm-hmm. so all of this uncensored material comes up out of our, the deeper parts of ourselves. And, and that's what is very exciting or or healing about potentially about them now for for most of us um, is this a comfortable experience to have because some people really freak out you know when they when they go on these trips and things like that I know we're we're going to talk about um, you know microdosing and things like that for you know for um, for uh, mental issues, but can everybody deal with that, that expansion? I would say most everyone can. 
Um, so there's, um, I mean, there's always certain contraindications. And one is, well, if you're psychotic, probably you shouldn't do this. <laughs> um, you know, if if it's if it's like I would say for any kind of uh, again this word I hate to use kind of normal person who's not uh, not in some kind of extreme panic state because of kind of un- uncontrolled material is already flooding him or her. But okay. if if you're um, if you have a fairly stable ego, most anyone could do this if. Uh, the set and the setting are good. In other words, okay. it really depends on the conditions you take it in and whether you feel safe and there's, uh, and there's help around. So certainly in any kind of taking of a psychedelic or a mind-altering compound, um, it's important, yeah, the environment you do it in and your intentions of doing it. So, mm. but just... Uh, I mean, just to um, probably for you, but mostly for your listeners. In a, in a in a Johns Hopkins study, I mean, they they did studies on anxiety and with cancer patients who were terminal, et cetera. But they also did studies um, just giving in a safe, controlled environment um, uh, psilocybin to what they called drug naive naive patients people who had never taken any kind of drug or substance before. So um, in that study, 69% of the drug-naive patients who had never done it before took one psilocybin journey, and as I said, 69% of them called it one of the best five experiences of their lifetime. Wow. Uh, And 80% of them reported that it increased their life satisfaction. So, so again, but those. Mm-hmm. But I do want to say, in terms of people's fear of freaking out, the conditions you take it, your intention and the conditions you take it in, and it's really important to feel safe and supported. Those can be crucial. I mean, yeah, you don't want to take it uh, take it in a whatever while driving or in a party <laughs> condition. <laughs> right, right. Um. So I mentioned the word microdosing, um, and I know that um, that is being considered with these drugs, so using very small amounts to, um, to treat you know, anxiety and things like that. So what's the difference between a full-blown dose and a microdose and how it would affect us? Okay, well, um, you know... Um, well, just to, to kind of put it in uh, simple, understandable terms. So let's just say for LSD, um, you know, a full dose, dose would be 300 micrograms. That would, give you, that would give you an LSD trip. A microdose might be 10 grams, which is like one-thirtieth of that. And so... Um, um, so I, I guess to put in a kind of a simple way, I'll just say um, in a micro, if people who are, say, microdosing LSD and, or microdosing mushrooms, psilocybin, um, they may, you know, through doing that, they may go out and, you know, the day just seems more beautiful and happy and they feel more positive. Um, 
but they're not stopping because the flowers are actually talking to them. <laughs> so that's kind of the difference. It's like, oh, yeah, things just seem a little brighter or more comfortable or I'm more relaxed, but it's not, <laughs> you know, like I say, the, you know, the, the flowers aren't asking them to stop and talk with them. So, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so I could see where that would be really therapeutic for people who are mm-hmm. having depression and anxiety and and things like that to be able to see the world in a more positive, more exciting way than their mind has allowed them at this point to see it, right? Um before before we um we went on air we were talking about the above ground and the underground um cultures of psychedelic drug experimentation so let's talk a little bit about that um so the above ground would be would represent what well the above ground is like um there are there are actually certain research institutes at john's uh you know the places that are doing actually government approved and funded studies so uh, Johns Hopkins has been doing studies on psilocybin as it relates to anxiety and depression, whether that can be helped, uh, you know, in cancer patients who are, um, you know, facing terminal diagnoses. Um, there's a uh, MDMA, which is being, there's a kind of controlled study being being done on how it can help uh, people who have PTSD so the above ground is actually these really well-known and uh, well-known institutions, you know, hospitals, research institutions that have been approved by the Food and Drug Administration and to actually do these controlled studies under strict conditions to find out, you know, what, um, what might be potential uh, therapies, um, uh, you know, uh, that could make a real difference in the future. That's the above ground. It's kind of, yeah, basic scientific research, controlled studies, um, you know, um, where you have people getting a placebo, people not. So so that's the above ground. And most of the, uh, most of the above ground studies are about um, four, four particular substances. There's... Uh, you know what's known popularly as mushrooms is is actually the substance psilocybin psilocybin mushrooms they're being studied a lot there's um m d m a which the street name goes by either ecstasy or or molly so m d m a is being studied um ketamine there's actually a hundred over somewhere around a hundred and fifty hundred and fifty clinics that are that are legally uh doing ketamine ther- therapy with uh people with various kinds of um disorders and and there's also uh studies on DMT or 5MEO DMT which is a is a very in powerful and intense um substance um which actually gives you an an incredibly powerful journey that lasts five minutes so (laughs) 
Well, that's safe. <laughs> we can all uh, deal well, with five minutes, right? 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 You know, it's interesting. Somebody well, just recently asked me about ketamine. I, I wasn't familiar with it, and they um, have a um, a loved one who is suffering from extreme anxiety, and they said, Did, "Have you heard of ketamine therapy?" And I said, "No." So, um, ketamine. What is ketamine? Well, it's um, actually ketamine has for a long time been legal as an anesthetic and mostly used by veterinarians, um, you know, uh, but it's also used in something called ketamine infusion therapy for treatment-resistant depressions. Um, and actually the FDA has approved a, some kind of a nasal spray that uses a closely related drug. But um, basically um, ketamine spends it basically rapidly reduces life-threatening thoughts or actions, and so it's yeah used to treat depression and anxiety. Um, oh wow! And yeah, and ketamine clinics. I mean, there's actually the number of them is growing rapidly, and and a clinic can range from just doctors' offices to really <laughs> posh wellness centers. Um, so. Oh, interesting. And so yeah, you can you go, you can either you know, go to a doctor's office office and get some treatments, or you can go to one of these kind of wellness centers and you know, go on a re- retreat that has, you know, and get over a week or so with this kind of um, a handful of ketamine sessions. So. Wow. So is it just a matter of, of taking the medication, or is there some psychological, um, <clears throat> you know, s- some work that's done um you know, psychologically or emotionally or whatever, is it just a matter of taking the medication or is there, you know, something else that goes along with the therapy? Uh, I, I, what I would say is there's a lot of variation in that. So, okay. um, for example, um, in, um, let's just say in the use of MDMA, which has been studied a lot for PTSD, used uh, uh, in, in that instance, the, the, the MDMA substance, but it's usually coupled with a lot of um, with a lot of counseling and and therapy. So, okay. okay. Although, okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, so MDMA, it, its kind of main use is to ease trauma, and it's because it basically um, it creates feelings of love, openness, and safety, which is exactly what someone who who's experiencing. PTSD doesn't have. So. Oh yes. Oh yes. And so the, um, the, and are these treatments lasting? Like, do they actually cure the situa- the um, the issue, or are they, or do you have to continue the treatments? As far as you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, as far as I know, c- certainly in the ones that have been studied. So, um, I'll give an example. Um. Johns Hopkins did this this study of of people who had terminal cancer uh, diagnoses, and and obviously those those people had a lot of um, fear of death and anxiety um, related to that. So that so they basically um, with those cancer patients patients with high anxiety, they gave them again in a controlled situation, and they were you know, given a lot of information about, you know, they're laying down in a comfortable bed and, you know, they have everything they might want with them. And they were given uh, one dose, a dose of um, psilocybin. 
And the, and the research showed that 80% of those cancer patients um, had an, a, a greatly reduced fear of anxiety, reduced anxiety and fear of death. And, um, and six months later, they were still feeling that from one dose. Oh, so. okay. Okay. Well, that's a good answer. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about the above ground. What about the underground? What's going on with that? Yeah, well, part of part of um uh, part of what I want to say is there is some over the uh, overlap of the above ground and the below ground in that so um so for example, mushroom psilocybin, which is a big part of the above ground, um you know, um you know, studies research, and research. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for example, but mushrooms, which have also had a long underground use, I mean, in certain places in the United States, and I think uh, Denver, Santa Cruz, and a few other cities have actually made psilocybin legal. <laughs> so in those places, the underground has just come above ground because they're... Really? Those are now... Yeah. So, um, so basically what I want to say is that... Um, you know, so there was a big uh, opening to psychedelics in the '60s. You know, you know, it's it's almost legendary. It's a kind of a, a cultural um, <laughs> watershed. But then, and then, you know, the government freaked out and totally shut it down and made them class four illegal drugs. But when that happened, a lot of it dried up. But a lot of it just continued. But since it was now illegal, it went underground, and so certainly over since from the nineteen mid to late nineteen sixties up until you know maybe five six years ago, most of that happened underground. But there continued to be guides and mentors who who you know would conduct ceremony ceremonies or um, LSD or or psilocybin or various other ceremonies for people who sought them out, and it could be individual or small groups. So that that has uh, continued that continued underground from the 60s, and that's increasing now. Um, so yeah, it's it's very it's very easy, you know, if you if you go around and search around to find a guide who is willing to um uh be your guide for an individual journey or some and it's very easy to find you know again if you search around search around to find guides who uh conduct group journeys um, i think what i uh one of the things i want to say about that is when talking about underground i have to bring up the substance ayahuasca which is a huge part of what's what's the underground, um, you know, um, uh, underground movement, and um, so and ayahuasca is generally probably something that's not going to be studied much in terms of um, in terms of research institution because it's a much <laughs> it's a much harder substance to control in the sense of you know if if you're stud- if you're studying psilocybin you go in and you know it can be administered in a very kind of um controlled dose 
You know, they have to say, oh, you're going to get 200 micrograms or 300 and control that. But ayahuasca, and you will basically probably be in a comfortable room, lie in a bed, and, and have your journey, and then talk about it later. Ayahuasca, fortunately or unfortunately, is... Um, has both a very psychedelic component. It, it contains DMT, which is called the spirit molecule, but it also is a purgative. So most people who take ayahuasca, as well as having this profound journey, also are very likely to be vomiting at several points. Through. And that's probably not something doctors want to deal with controlled situations. <laughs> you know. What's good about, I mean, what what could be positive about that? I'm, uh, you know, why would somebody want to do that? Because it's worth, the, the pain is worth the pleasure? The pleasure is worth the pain? Is that what it is? Well, um, yeah, so one of the, um, you know, uh, before when I talked about DMT, or I, I talked about it, it's very powerful, but it's like a five-minute journey. Right. Um, it, uh, the the main psychedelic agreement uh, 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 ingredient of ayahuasca is DMT, but okay. it's, uh, but it's a mixture of of um, the uh, of DMT plus the ayahuasca vine, which is a purgative. Because it's mixed with the purgative, the DMT journey isn't this five minute rocket ship. <laughs> it's a much longer four hour opening so so it essentially makes the dmt journey you know three or four or five hours instead of five minutes Mm -hmm. so so in that sense it's way easier to comprehend um you know after a five minute journey it's like wow where was i (laughs) um but but I want to say the other the other thing I think that is make that make ayahuasca um, has made ayahuasca popular and um, ayahuasca is is essentially a, a plant. It's kind of in some ways the people call it the mother the mother of all medicine plants and it's traditional uh, one of the traditional plants in the Amazon jungle and there's a whole there's a whole when I say underground the, in Peru there's a whole it's it's this ayahuasca tourism. They have an, a big tourist industry that come to Peru just to take ayahuasca. Because in Peru, not only is it, it's, it's not, not only not illegal in Peru, they've actually um, labeled it a national heritage plant. So it's essentially part of, part of uh, what they consider part of their tradi- um, tradition and cultural heritage. But basically, I think what what happens on ayahuasca, because that purgative is there, and what's incredibly revealing um, is that, you know, we all have certain thought patterns. And, okay, I'll, you know, truth be told, I'm, I'm saying this because I've probably, I've taken ayahuasca um, several times. And the way I would describe it is it's great medicine, but not for the faint-hearted. So... <laughs> Okay. And and why I I say it's great medicine is it makes it so psychosomatic where on an ayahuasca journey um you can you know you can be lying there on your mat or whatever having the journey and then you get into certain thought patterns certain thought patterns that are dysfunctional that have resentment 
And as soon as you get into those thought patterns, you start getting nauseous. Oh, wow. So, okay. you know, um, you know, my basic, again, trying to put this in a few sentences to describe it to people, I would say ayahuasca is like having your heart, hard drive scanned for viruses. Because okay. whatever's there in your mind, if, if there are thoughts that are unloving or resentful or things, you, things you're holding on for, you start focusing on them, and then you start to get nauseous. And there's a, real, there's a real sense that people under ayahuasca have that actually when the vomiting comes, they're actually vomiting and purging that kind of virus in their mind, that kind of way of thinking. And, you know, in that sense, it's an, even though obviously nobody likes to vomit, but there's an incredible <laughs> sense of liberation of expelling that way of thinking and thinking about the world and those kind of beliefs. So it's a very powerful sense of... Yeah, expelling. Right, of purging, purging everything, really. <clears throat> that reminds uh, me of the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where they can actually erase, you know, parts of your of your mind. But, you know, that's this is super powerful. Um, what kind of – I know that you take people on journeys. What, what do you do? Um, you know, for example, on, on vision quests. Is that what you know? Um, um, yeah. Well, I, yeah. For um, I've led uh, I've led small group vision quests, usually six to eight people. Um, you know, uh, you know, anywhere from six to nine a year um, since 1987. So, so on a vision quest, even vision quests don't actually use psychedelics, but they use various other techniques to kind of drop down into that vast lake. Um, Below the surface, the particular, the uh, particular, what happens is in quest, there are three core um, processes. First of all, um, usually that you have four days and nights. First of all, you're alone, so you're not getting, so you're essentially distancing, distancing yourself of leaving. You actually leave behind all of the social world and the downloads that you normally live in in daily life. So you have four days and nights alone. In those four days and nights, you're actually in wilderness. So, you're, so you don't have any books, you don't have any entertainment, you don't have all the usual distractions. You just have nature. You have that, that whatever your view of nature, you have that force that we didn't create. In normal daily life, we're living in a world we created, houses, clocks, screens it's all human created all of a sudden on a vision quest you're in a world that created you we evolved out of nature so you're alone you're away from all the downloads you're having a relationship with a much larger world that created you and you're fasting and fasting produces an altered state so um so on a vision quest you get all three of those and also in the preparation time you're you're uh, I teach people a lot of rituals and ceremonies, and and ritual, uh, again, is an is another uh, set of processes that get us out of that conscious mind and into the deeper parts of our being. So, so on the one hand, so yeah, I've been leading vision quests, which have have, you know, three or four of these processes that can take take us out of our conscious mind and into our deeper mind. How often, also, do you, I, how often do you do these? 
vision quests? Well, um, I'm going to have to answer that differently since we're now in the socially isolated corona <laughs> pandemic. But, uh, okay, normally uh, outside of this if, pandemic. <laughs> yeah, if, if I if I talked about the last 31 years, um, I basically lead a one a month from March through October. So that's what's that eight eight or so a year. And, okay, and, and that's whole, one person at a time. No, it, I usually do it in small groups. So, and usually six to eight people, and the whole the whole journey is eleven days. But so, in the first three and four days, we're preparing. We're working with intention and building community, and I'm teaching a lot of rituals and ceremonies that they can do on their solo, their four day vision quest. So, so for that that first three or four days all happen in a small group context, and there's a lot of teaching and working with people's intentions and the issues they're working with. And then after that three or four days, there is the, quote, vision quest proper, the four-day solo when they're alone in nature and fasting and doing a lot of these rituals and and ceremonies and, and various other processes. And then after that, they come back and we're all, we're back in that small group again. And the last three days about are about really going through People come back and tell the story of that, going through what happened, uh, what they meant, the dreams that came to them, and you know various things that came out of this non-ordinary state, and then working to try and integrate them to find ways and perspectives that they can then bring back home into their daily life and kind of in some way plant there so they'll grow and make, make a larger field to play in. So I've and been, uh-huh. you've also offered workshops on medicine wheel teachings, and um, you've traveled to the Amazon to explore medicinal plants and things like that, too. What are uh, medicine wheel teachings? What do you do with that? Well, certainly, medicine, uh, two things. One, I certainly share medicine. Every time I have a vision quest group, I, I share medicine wheel teachings. But um, And I've also given workshops, particularly just on medicine wheel teachings, but uh, a simple way to, to um, I think medicine wheel teachings are, uh, those teachings are a great way to, um, they combine two, the, I would say the two fundamental spiritual principles of life, which is um, the, first, the first basic spiritual principle is we are all one. We're all the same. We're all connected. We all come from the same place. And that is represented by the circle. You know, it's just like, the, you know, the circular nature of reality. It's just like, um, but the, the, second, the sense, second principle is, yes, we are all one, but we're also all different. <laughs> so, um, so the way that's represented in the medicine wheel is we are all one. There's a cycle of one year. But there are four seasons. Spring, summer, fall, and winter are very different with very different lessons and very different forms of beauty and very different challenges. Or, you know, or there is the circle of the horizon. It's one circle, but there's north, south, east, and west. You know, and um, yeah, and so, and, and there's a circle of a human life. And there's one life, but then again, there's childhood, 
adolescence, adulthood, and elder. And so Medicine Wheel teachings are a way to speak about those particular directions or teaching, like there's lessons we need to learn in childhood, you know, and those are lessons of trust and innocence and being in the physical, sensual world. And there's lessons we need to learn in adolescence because adolescence is the time when we create our separate self, our unique individual personality, and there are issues and struggles around that sense of separation. And then there's, again, there's the lessons of adulthood, which are about being in being in the world and taking responsibility and finding your gift and giving that to your people. Adults are, pe- are the ones that keep the society or the village or whatever it is functioning. And so, so medicine wheel teachings are a way to embrace the oneness of everything, but just see in that oneness there are different seasons, different perspectives, you know, different lessons and different gifts and diff- different challenges. And it, it helps people, one, to see their problems not as personal failures, but as, oh, this is a challenge that's appropriate to this particular time of life, mm. this particular, yeah. So wow. it allows people to really see their issues not as failures or personal things, but to say, oh, I just haven't fully learned the lesson, this lesson of childhood, and then respond to it without shame or guilt or, or without rejecting the lessons of other times of life, which can be very different and almost seem contradictory. So, What a beautiful, beautiful way to be able to experience life. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. It's, that's amazing. Um, yeah. So getting back to um, the psychedelic drugs, well, actually all of what we're talking about, are we actually bringing part of the unconscious to the conscious mind? Is that what we're doing? Yeah, that's essentially it. It's just, a, you know, kind of as I described that first diagram, that big round circle, but mm-hmm. the line, there's a line, and, we're, you know, mostly we're living in that 10% above it. And right. we're total, and mostly when we're divorced or don't know that other 90%, it's very easy for us to live in ways that are dysfunctional or uh, one way I... Uh, one way I put it once in a piece of writing, it's, it's, I said, it's like we're living with a size 10 soul, you know, but we, we're given like a size 6 life. It's like <laughs> if you had size at, a 10 feet and always wore size 6 shoes. And, of course, then there's all this kind of pain or dysfunction or I don't feel like I'm really finding meaning. Well, of course, we're living out of we're living out of the 10% or we're living out of ideas or dreams that our culture has given us, or we're still living in the cultural definitions of what it means to be a success or what it means to be a man or a woman, or we're still living out of trauma that we experienced in childhood. And and so all of those things cause, cause pain, and that can show up as fear, anxiety, eating disorders, um, uh, you know, addictions to medicate the pain of all that. And so some of the solution has to do with, ooh, living in a larger field. So we're not wearing size six shoes all the time. <laughs> is the goal to completely eliminate the line, or is the goal to find a balance between, you know, the 50% above the line and 50% below? 
Yeah, I don't. I don't think the goal is to eliminate the line. I don't. Well, you know, I don't think you. I think if you totally eliminated the line, there's probably no way you could get in your car and go to work. You know. <laughs> you know. Well, let, let's just. Uh, um, um, uh, again, a line I like to quote from Joseph Campbell is is that um, a yogi and a schizophrenic are sw- are in the same ocean. <laughs> the yogi is swimming, and the schizophrenic is drowning. So, um, okay. so I think what to me what's healthy is to be able to uh, yeah live ab- above that line. We have to. I mean. Uh, we have anybody who lives in a society or culture has to live above the line. I mean, you have to know you have to know where to go, where and how to get food. Whether that's how to earn money and go to a supermarket, or how to weave together nets so you can catch fish. So everybody has to know the the things you need to know to live above the line. But if you're only living there, you're living in a much smaller world. So. So, so to be, but to be wholly below the line is to have such a big world. It's almost, you know, it it overwhelms us in terms of its, you know, the vastness of it. So, this, how to, tra- you know, if you're just in that vast world, it's like every direction can look about the same, and there's no, how do I know what to do? Uh, so, but it's it's you know what I think I like to uh, the way I like to think about it is I say this. There's the uh, mundane or the daily world, and there's the sacred world. And to me, it's I like to use the metaphor of walking. To walk well, you have you take one step in the mundane daily world, and then your next step is in the sacred world, and then your next step is in the daily world, and your next step is in the sacred. And my sense is, if if you don't if you don't have one of those legs, or if one of those one of those legs is too short, and it doesn't matter which one it is, then you're limping and you're really not getting very far, or you're falling. So, so to me, I I think of it as not one at the expense of it. It's like how can I or we develop the ability to, when I do start to feel those limitations, oh, have a way to get into a much larger framework in which answers are answers that are maybe outside the box are much more likely to be found answers okay. that are in, yeah. inspiring fulfilling and accessible. then accessible the those things are accessible to us mm-hmm. yeah and then the <clears> next <throat> step is to then bring bring them back into the other foot and bring them back into the way we lead our daily lives so. i'm taking a um while during this pandemic, I'm taking several um, university courses, um, you know, from some of the major universities. But I'm taking one that's what is a mi- what is a mind. But <clears throat> what he was talking about yesterday is that, you know, every animal has this. You know, the skunk uses its scent to scare off people. You know, the porcupine has that. Every animal sort of has a purpose for what it does. The human animal really doesn't. The purpose of the human animal is to create a civilization or a culture. We do it together, and that's how we protect ourselves. Um, So it's important that we understand that culture and civilization is the the, – 
the importance of the human animal and so that we have to bring that part of it, you know, to it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Although, though I, I think, you know, for me, culture and civilization aren't necessarily the same. Well, that's true. That, You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, right. I think the way we evolved the, the first two and a half million years of human history was all in small groups. We evolved in the situ- we evolved to live in a in a circle the, a village sized circle right, where we might have known 50, 50 to 150 people and in that context it was easy to find our purpose because the village would want us to develop our abilities and then whatever they were whether it was to be a hunter or whether it was to be a healer those would be recognized and we would develop that to give them to the village but all of a sudden, when we're living in, uh, you know, instead of 50 to 150 people, we're living in a city of 300,000 or a nation of, it's like, we have no idea the context we're in. There's no mm-hmm. sense of, you know, well, who who do I give my gifts to? Do I give it to my uh, kind of blood family? And, well, at least in my case, nah, they're just not interested. <laughs> do I... <laughs> Then who who are my people? Is it like my thousand Facebook friends? No, most of them I've never met. So it's really you know always oh, part of what's yeah. dif- part of what's difficult is we're actually in some sense hardwired to have that some fifty to one hundred fifty people we're really close to and to give our gifts to, but but always I mean the news is about things that is happening in. Asia or Australia or the middle it's like everything that floods in is 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 anything but a close knit community so so part of the difficulty finding our purpose is we don't in some sense don't know who we are and uh so what often when I, at the end of a vision quest one of the things i uh say to people is the vision quest question is what gifts do you have to your to give to your people and uh, that's two questions the first is what is my gift what is it that i'm passionate about and i would say for you it's obviously one of the things you're passionate about has led to you doing this show you know mm-hmm. you know sp- speaking your truth and your interest in healing and and so there's a some sense where you probably have a pretty good sense of your gifts but then I always say the second question is, who are your people? Because, you know, <laughs> and some people might answer that. It's, my oh, my spouse and my children. But another person, that doesn't work for them, and so they might have to answer that. Um, my people is anyone who's in recovery from addiction. That might be mm. their answer. Or, gotcha. or anyone who's working for peace and justice or anyone who's working to save the coral reefs. Or, so. Mm-hmm. Right, gotcha. Yeah. I understand. So, yeah, so, um, <clears throat> you know, you said, um, people, you know, we don't know who we are. A part of that is we really don't appreciate who we are, and that's um, something that I, you know, I find with um, those clients who come to me is ch- find, finding the appreciation for self, you know, for who they are and what they have to offer uh, because they've been taught or program yeah. to believe that they don't yeah. matter. So um, mm-hmm. in the last, we just have a few minutes left. Um, this went so fast. 
Anyway, yeah, uh, is, there a message you want, is there a message you want to share real quick before we end the show? Yeah, um, I, I would say, uh, kind of, Randy, like you, the, the people co- who come to work with me, whether on vision quests or whether in workshops to learn shamanic journeying or whatever, um, those are people who have found that somehow staying within the box um, of, of whatever that box is for them is way too small for who they are. And so I, I think what I want to say is that a lot of people have been taught to be afraid of going into the unknown, to going outside, you know, to go outside the boundaries they've taught uh, they've been taught they should stay in, and they could be afraid of judgment of others. They could be afraid of something they might find in themselves, or losing and control, want, losing the control that yeah. they feel they the artificial control, right? Yeah. So what I what I would want to leave people with is, in in the work I do, and I would imagine also in the work you do, stepping outside the bounds of that is frightening. But it's also likely to be one of the one of the most exciting and fulfilling journeys you will ever take, and it's very much like those what do they call them um psychedelic naive people who took a journey and seventy percent talk uh described it as one of the five most important things I've ever done so that's so cool yeah. thank you for that message that's that's so important for us to hear. Uh, do you have a website, Sparrow? Yeah, I do. It's um, www.questforvision.com, all lowercase, okay. quest, Q-U-E, and four is F-O-R. It's not the number, questforvision.com. Okay, so if anybody um, wants to contact you about a workshop or a journey or whatever, that's they would find you there, right? Yep, there's the list of workshops, journeys. There's also blog posts and various things, various kind of free gifts you could download, you know. Oh, um, good. Okay. Yeah, audio, good. audio files and various things. So. Okay. Wow, it's been so good talking to you. Um, you know, I tried to cover the highlights of, of every point, um, and it just went so fast. But I think we got a lot. I know. I think we educated yeah. people pretty well about um, about, you know, the health benefits of psychedelic drugs, which was the purpose of this show, <clears throat> and help people understand yeah. how to um, get out of the box they're in. So thank you, Sparrow. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate you being my guest. Oh, yeah, I really enjoyed it, too. And, again, I just want to say for the, the health benefits, if you take it, the set and the setting you take it in is so important. And the dangers are if you take it in some setting, like you don't want to take it on a motorcycle. <laughs> you don't want to take it with people you don't trust. But okay. if the set right. and setting is... We're going to get cut off in about 20 seconds. So I'm going to say goodbye and thanks again. Oh, thank you so much. I've, I've loved the time, spending the time. Okay, great. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.